good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. The Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and to promote public education. We've been here since 1987 and hopefully we'll be here for a long time to come. And we have a website at www.adogs.info if you want to find out more about what we're about. But also, um, we put up a press release almost every week, and we have a press release to read out over 3CR this week. It is press release 866. We'll also be dealing with TAFE and how, in fact, it is a powerhouse for the Australian economy, which Mr Morrison just doesn't seem to realise. And as well as that, we have um, something that's very interesting about um, well-being in schools, in public schools. There's a lot of talk about well-being, isn't there? And some of the wealthy schools have got special well-being centres. But there's going to be a lot of children who are in need of good counselling when they come back to school after having been in lockdown, when all sorts of things could have been happening if they are children from disadvantaged homes. As well as that, we have an observer's view on the Commons vote to let poor children go hungry over in the UK. What is happening in the UK and USA, of course, and Europe uh, is, is tragedy at the moment. But unfortunately, there's a lot of poor children in those countries that are falling through the, the cracks. And I'm going to let Dale uh, tell you about just how terrible the Tories are in England when it comes to poor children. But um, let's get off the show on the road. Our press release 866, Closing Australia's Education Divide, will take a generation. But I've also made the heading, When Will Australia Ever Learn? And I want to do a little bit of history before we get into the latest research from the Mitchell Institute at the Victoria University. Going back to 1972, 12th of December, the Honourable E.G. Whitlam, Prime Minister of Australia, set up an interim committee of the Australian Schools Commission. Do you remember? They were talking about needs policies and disadvantaged children, particularly disadvantaged children uh, in the Catholic schools. The public schools got some mention along the way uh, with, with disadvantaged children too. But the committee was asked to make recommendations as to the immediate financial needs of schools priorities within those needs and the appropriate measures to assist in meeting those needs. And they came up with a principle of equality. And I'll read this out because it's a very interesting principle, how they define equality. Very emotional language equality. The committee values the principle that the standard of schooling a child receives should not depend on what his parents are able or willing to contribute directly to it, or whether he's enrolled in a government or a non-government school. As well as that, they also thought that those schooling for is unequal for out-of-school situations, they wanted to ensure that the child's overall condition of upbringing is as free of restriction due to the circumstances of his family as public action through the schools can make it. So that was their ideal. It didn't matter how much your parents bought home in their pay packet, if they even had a pay packet, 
uh, the children were going, were going to have um, equal opportunity. Well, we know it didn't happen. And 40 years later, David Gonski articulated this equality or needs principles even more strikingly. Uh, referring to his 2011 Gonski Review of School Funding report in 2014 when he was giving the Jean Blackburn Memorial Lecture, he said, we delivered the Gonski report in December 2011 and in it we set out our recommendations and our funding arrangements whose aim was to produce improved educational outcomes for all Australian students and also to seek to listen to this to ensure that educational outcomes in Australia were not the result of differences in wealth, income, power or possession. And then he went on to say how horrified they were, the members of the committee, when they went around and saw the state of some of the schools and disadvantaged children. So um, they were aware that things were not as they should be. In fact, they could well have been worse than they were back in 1972. Now, if Carmel and Gonski sincerely believed that they could make a difference, they were proven mistaken. The history of equality in Australian education is, amongst other things, the history of the failure of a social democratic post-World War II enterprise to tackle the ever-growing gap between the education of the wealthy privileged classes, the upper 10% or even the upper 1%, and the disadvantaged in the lowest quartile, the low, lowest 25%. In 1973, the Whitlam government didn't control the Senate, and that was their problem, as we all know. Two compromises were made right at the very beginning, because the story of education funding since 1973 has been compromises in funding. In order to establish the Schools Commission, and give jobs for the boys, the Commonwealth funding of resource-rich, wealthy schools was continued. The Carmel Committee suggested that some schools lose public funding because they didn't need it. They never have needed it, and yet they still get it in spades. But they couldn't get that through. And the Catholic Church was given what it wanted. They wanted big blocks of billions to administer themselves, and they had never really looked after their needy schools the way they should. And there's proof to this now. So, um, according to Malcolm Turnbull, expressing outrage at both of these compromises, um, we, we find that, in fact, um, all they're really about is trying to improve the enrolment of the middle-ranking people and the wealthy. Now, the reality is, is in the public domain. By 2020, the, the time that we're living in, in the time of the pandemic, the um, extraordinary um, lack of, of equality in Australian education has really come to the fore. And fiscal integrity alongside inequities affecting disadvantaged children in the Australian community, they've been exposed, not only uh, by the pandemic, but also by a series of international OECD and UNICEF reports, which we've told you about on this program, and that they have talked about the inequalities and the segregation in Australian education. There have also been a series of Auditor-General reports, federal and state, about how, in fact, the Catholic sector in particular, but other, other schools as well, have not been spending public money 
in the way that they were directed to. Uh, that's what Auditor Generals are about. And as well as that, there's the National School Resourcing Board that has done a review on the needs-based funding, and uh, that is very uh, critical also of what's happened. There's been research by various policy and research groups and reporters in the Fairfax Press uh, who very often report on what Trevor Cobalt, for example, from Save Our Schools has been finding out. And the ABC have also produced some very interesting documentation on the uh, inequities in Australian education. And now there's another one. There's yet another one from Victoria University. And uh, Connor Duffy, who is the ABC reporter, has put up on the ABC website, and we've given you the link if you want to read it after this, um, this program. Connor Duffy has reported on one of the most comprehensive studies of Australian education systems that has been done, and it's found that postcodes and family backgrounds impact the opportunities available to students from preschool to adulthood, which is exactly what they wanted to prevent, and they have failed to do it. One in three disadvantaged students has been falling through the cracks. That is really a very big figure. I suspect that it's almost as bad and probably worse than it was in 1972, because in 1972, when they were complaining about what was happening with the Catholic sector, that wouldn't have been anything like one-third of the children of Australia. And uh, there were children, of course, in, in the public sector that were suffering back in, um, in 1972. And remote children, children who live in remote areas, and the Aboriginal children have always been, unfortunately, falling through the cracks, in spite of many, many attempts to prevent this, because the money is going out the leaky sieve into the wealthy schools and into an administration that really is more interested, uh, in, in fact, in getting the middle class uh, children into its schools rather than looking after the disadvantaged. And I'm speaking then about the Catholic sector. Now, we'll have a bit of a break, and uh, Oliver's going to come back and tell you about this latest research, which is claiming that one-third of Australian children are falling through the cracks in disadvantage. Uh, this is a very big figure and a very worrying figure indeed. But we'll have a bit of a break and then over to Oliver. You can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people and the length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion. And it began 250 years ago this year. Now we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda and race hatred indoctrination. Now it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land, brutally. We might be oppressed, but we understand what freedom is, and we fight for it every day, and we've resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism, capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold by about mid this year. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au.
brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 200 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminawaya Mawbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio. Your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Well, yes, we've been talking about the levels of disadvantage in Australia, uh, largely because um, of public funding of private schools that really started big time back in 1973. Uh, they said that they were going to stop it by giving money to the private schools and all they've done is make it worse. But um, the evidence is coming in in droves in 2020 in the year of the pandemic and another, as we've said earlier, another researcher, uh, a gentleman from the Victoria University, uh, the, the Mitchell Institute, has done some very interesting work indeed on closing Australia's education divide and he says it will take a generation to do it. Well, we've been trying to do it for many generations and we've failed, um, but uh, at least he is um, he's hopeful. And it can be done. It could be done if we made all of our uh, institutions equal. If every school had an open enrolment policy, with no requirements for any child wanting to uh, go into that school, and if it was illegal, as it is in Finland, to charge fees. The taxpayers need to pay more tax, particularly the wealthy, and we need to look after our next generation. Uh, But uh, over to Oliver. Thank you, Jean. Sergio Macklin, the Deputy Lead of Education Policy at Victoria University's Mitchell Institute, released the report Educational Opportunity in Australia, which calls for immediate immediate extra resources to help disadvantaged Indigenous and remote students. The study tracked 300,000 kids from school entry to adulthood. Students from disadvantaged backgrounds were less likely to to progress into work or further study. The The Smith families and Hampshire believes the problem can be fixed within one generation. Educational success is strongly linked to the wealth of a young person's family and where they grow up, Mr Macklin said. I think Australia is really letting down students from low-income families, Aboriginal students and those in remote areas. The report critiques progress on last December's Alice Springs Educational Council meeting, where, in the wake of Australia's poor performance against its international counterparts, education ministers pledged to deliver a system that produced excellence and equity. Last year's poor results on the quality of education have now been exacerbated by remote learning, with some students without internet or stability at home falling weeks behind their peers. The children and young people that were being worse served by the education system are probably the ones that are being most affected by it, Mr. Macklin said. So you will see employment stress in families dramatically increased uh, student vulnerability. 
The report followed the progress of more than 300,000 students from school entry through primary school into high school and on to early adulthood. Mr. Macklin believes the problem will take a generation to fix. The report found disadvantaged students were more than twice as likely as their peers to not be in study or work by the age of 24. The national average of students missing out on either work or study is 15%, but this rise to 32% of students from the lowest SES backgrounds, 38% from very remote areas, and 45% among Indigenous young people. I think what this report highlights is that we're losing young people's opportunities in adulthood, and that's a real problem for young people, Mr Macklin said. But it's also a real problem for Australia, who puts a handbrake on our recovery efforts from the COVID recession. Back to you, Jane. Yes, well, there you are. Um, it's just yet another report that says that something has to be, has to be done. Well, the uh, dogs, as we've said earlier, know what has to be done. The state aid to private schools which divide children and which lead to inequality has to be stopped. And we have to make all our schools equally accessible and equally resourced. And in those areas like the remote areas and the Indigenous areas and the areas where there is poverty, we need to put more money in. Other countries can do it. Other countries have done it. In a place like Norway, for example, the royal family feels quite free and able to send their children to the local state school because the local state school is good enough for royalty. And all of our state schools, all of our public schools in Australia should be good enough for royalty. Uh, and uh, until we get to that point, um, we're just going to keep on getting these uh, research documents telling us that things are just not good enough. And uh, yes, we can say perhaps it's always been the case, but it does not have to be the case and it is not the case in some other countries. And I don't see why Australia should be on a race to the bottom for the next generation. Well, that's enough for our uh, press release 866 for this afternoon. We'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back. We've got some more interesting material. We've got Dale who's going to tell us that the TAFE system supports $93.5 billion in annual economic benefits. Mr Morrison should be looking at this. It's a very interesting article indeed.
good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools. We're here every Saturday without fail at 12 noon, even in COVIDness times. And uh, we're now going to talk about the TAFE sector. The TAFE sector has been under attack since the 1980s with privatisation. And yet it has survived. It hasn't flourished as it should, but it has done a wonderful job. And uh, Mr Morrison seems to think that uh, it's going to be the tradies that are going to save the economy in Australia. Well, he should be looking at how, how the TAFE sector fits into this. And we're going to hear from Dale uh, about the $92.35 billion in annual economic benefits. Uh, this is uh, a report of research that was done for the TAFE annual day, the day, the TAFE day, back in August the 13th. And I'm sorry that we didn't bring it to you before, but I think it's a very important piece of research. And over to Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, I've got an article here by from the Australian Institute, the Australia Institute, as titled "TAFE System Supports 92.5 Billion Dollars in Annual Economic Benefits." New research from the Australia Institute's Centre for Future Work shows the TAFE system supports 92.5 billion dollars in annual economic benefits through the direct operation of TAFE institutes, higher incomes and productivity generated by the TAFE credentialed workforce and reduced social benefits costs. The report adopts a multidimensional approach to measuring the wide economic and social benefits of the TAFE system resulting from Australia's historic investments in the public vocational education. Over $6 billion in economic activity and 48,000 jobs are supported by the direct operation of TAFE institutes and the TAFE supply chain. Through its accumulated contribution to the employability and skills of Australians, the TAFE system generates another flow of benefits worth $84.9 billion per year in higher incomes and productivity. Those benefits are shared by workers in higher incomes, firms in higher profits and federal and state governments, which receive $25 billion per year in extra tax revenue. Finally, another $1.5 billion in fiscal savings are enjoyed by governments through reduced cost for health and welfare benefits for TAFE graduates. Altogether, the TAFE system drives $92.5 billion in benefits per year, equal to almost 5% of Australia's GDP. The report finds, despite chronic underfunding, Australia's historic investment in the TAFE system continues to generate an enormous and ongoing dividend to the Australian economy. Increased public investment in the skills and earning capabilities of Australians will be critical to our post-pandemic recovery. Some of the key findings are as follows. Australia's historic investments in quality TAFE education supports a combined and ongoing flow of total economic benefits worth $92.5 billion to the Australian economy in 2019, 16 times greater than the annual maintenance costs Australia currently reinvests in the TAFE system. The presence and activity of TAFE institutions 
anchors over $6 billion per year in economic activity and 48,000 jobs from the direct operation of the TAFE system and its supply chain and downstream consumer spending impacts. The TAFE trained workforce generates $84.9 billion per year in higher incomes and business productivity. $49.3 billion is paid in additional earnings to TAFE credentialed workers relative to earnings of workers without post-school training, businesses receive $35.6 billion in increased profits from a more productive TAFE-trained workforce. The costs of delivering TAFE are modest. Only $5.7 billion per year, or 0.3% GDP. Extra tax revenues received by governments thanks to the superior productivity and incomes of TAFE-trained workers alone are worth $25 billion per year, 4.4 times more than the total cost of running the TAFE system. The TAFE system increases employability and lowers unemployment. TAFE graduates enter the labour force with better employed employment prospects and skills. The increased labour force participation and employability of TAFE graduates corresponds to additional employment of 486,000. The TAFE system promotes wider social benefits critical to addressing inequality. TAFE helps bridge access to further education and jobs pathways in regional areas and for special and at-risk youth groups. TAFE students are more likely to come from low-income households and identify as Aboriginal compared with private VET providers. Australia will squander the demonstrated economic benefits generated by our investments in the TAFE system and unnecessarily limit our post-COVID recovery if we don't act quickly to reinstate the critical role that TAFE plays in the VET system, said Alison Peddington, Senior Economist at the Australia Institute's Centre for Future Work. The Australian economy is reaping an enormous flow of economic benefits from a VET house built by the TAFE system, but the house that TAFE Institute's built is crumbling. If Australia wants to secure the benefits of a superior, productive, TAFE-trained workforce as we prepare for post-COVID reconstruction, the damage must be repaired quickly. Major public skills investments will be best coordinated by TAFE institutions as the longest standing and most reliable anchors of vocational training and must be at the centre of an economic reconstruction process. By providing bridges to further education and jobs for regional, low-income and at-risk youth groups, the TAFE system is critically important to addressing systemic inequality in Australia's economy and society. And that's from the new report, An Investment in Productivity and Inclusion, the Economic and Social Benefits of the TAFE System by Alison Pennington, the Senior Economist at the Australia Institute's Centre for Future Work. Back to well, isn't that interesting? Absolutely. Isn't that interesting? Well, they're talking about billions and billions and billions. Um, here we have a system which is crumbling but still there that Mr Morrison should be looking at. Uh, instead of still looking at a private system which ended up with a $19 billion rort. Unfortunately, um, well, we need a, a federal ICAP so that we can have a look at that rort, don't we? But um, we'll have a bit of a break now and then we'll come back with Oliver 
uh, who's got something very interesting from Angela Gabrielatis from up in uh, New South Wales, New South Wales Teachers Federation. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. Well, good afternoon, listeners. Here we are with the Dogs Program, back back again, with Oliver, who's got a very interesting article from the New South Wales Teachers Federation. Angelo Gavrilatis, who was there for many years, was a great activist for public education, went overseas and had an international career, but fortunately he's back in the New South Wales Teachers Federation again as their president. And here is a, an article that he's written on It's Time for the Government to make well-being in schools a priority because our schools, our teachers, our children, our workers in our schools have been through a terrible year uh, in which they have been expected to keep our children educated still online. They've had to learn a whole lot of new skills and they've stepped up to the mark and so many of our children, if they have been able and have had the resources in their home, have also stepped up to the mark. But now's the time to think about how we can help them as we come out of this terrible pandemic. Uh, Thank you, Jean. Uh, Angelo Gabrielatis writes, A long period of drought, catastrophic fires, and a disrupted school year amid the uncertainty, fear, and anxiety attached to the COVID-19 pandemic has made for a perfect storm as far as the mental health of young people is concerned. At its worst, it has resulted in suicide clusters, but teachers and principals have been raising the issue of the deteriorating mental health of their students for some time. Federation is aware of these concerns, confirmed by a recent survey of members in which 98% of teachers and 99% of principals said the number of students with mental health issues has increased in the past three years. I would like to thank those who responded to the survey, which has put a spotlight on a situation that has been bubbling below the surface of school life, not just for students, but for teachers, school counsellors and principals as well. The survey of 5,346 teachers and principals conducted by Federation between 24th, 24th of September and the 1st of October also revealed a quarter of students awaiting more than four weeks for counsellor support. Our school counsellors are dedicated, committed professionals doing all they can, but their caseload is totally unrealistic, unmanageable and unacceptable. This was acknowledged in the survey with a total of 98% saying achieving a school counsellor to to student ratio of 1 to 500 should be an urgent priority. With students' learning and well-being highest on your mind, their unmet need for mental health support and related issues are taking their toll on you. 
workload and the complexity of the job have continued to climb while support services have fallen away. This concern is appreciated by University of Sydney Professor of Psychiatry Ian Hickey, who told the Gallup Inquiry that the expectations uh, parents and the wider community place on teachers puts teachers on the very front line of managing an emerging youth mental health crisis, which is expected to grow up by up to 30% over the next decade. Our campaign demands an average of at least one school counsellor for every 500 students and increased funding for public schools so that students' mental health issues can be adequately addressed by the system and its allied health services. These improvements are urgent and vital for the well-being of students and members. Funding and resources for public schools at the very core. A report by former World Bank and Australian government economist Adam Roris has put tangible figures to the disparity we know exists in the lopsided equation that funds private and public schools. Mr. Roris's independent report has revealed Australian public schools will miss out on $19 billion in funding over the next four years, as the sector was completely overlooked in the recent federal budget and while private schools continue to be overfunded by $1 billion. State and federal governments should take a bow. This is a national disgrace. The report shows New South Wales public schools will be denied $5.5 billion in funding over the four years, while private schools in New South Wales will be overfunded to the tune of $806 billion. On a student-by-student -student level, private school students are overfunded by $816, while those in public schools are underfunded by $1,525 each. The glimmer of hope we had in 2013 with the introduction of a new school funding system under the Gonski reforms aimed at restoring some equity in school funding and therefore greater opportunity for kids was extinguished with the election of Abbott, Turnbull and Morrison governments. The most exasperating aspect of this assessment is that if there was any hint of even the slightest reining in of this scandalous situation, the heads of the private school system would go ballistic, yet for the past 20 years we have not had a peep from those responsible for administering and supposedly looking after our public schools. Back to you, Jean. Yes, uh, this is a problem, isn't it, that the, uh, that the ministers, even in the state governments, uh, have not been stepping up and putting more money into our public schools, but in fact, here in Victoria itself, they gave them 25% of whatever they estimate a public school gets. That's what the public, public school child is worth. But of course, in, in that figure, they put uh, estimates of the monies that they also spend on both public and private schools. So in many ways, it's always a very very, uh, not a very tangible figure. Uh, it's a movable feast for the private schools and it seems to be always missing out for the public schools. But uh, that's enough of that one. Uh, we'll have a bit of a break and then Dale will take us over to England. Uh, if we think things are bad here, uh, the Tory government there um, is really quite shocking uh, that... Uh, Let's have a little bit of a break before we go to that very sad story indeed. I really am not understanding why people aren't seeing the fact that prisons are an integral part of 
of a public health response to a pandemic. Like you, I'm really concerned about whether the data is being released very honestly about illnesses within prison. I have suspicions it's not, but really we need very strong leadership in this country that actually cares about people inside, our most vulnerable populations inside. That's what we need and that's not what we're getting right now. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. We're a proud product of a government funded primary school education and of a government funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Well, you're listening to The Dogs program still, I hope. And we're very, very lucky that you're there listening to us. We really do appreciate it because these programs are made under quite difficult circumstances. And we're very lucky to have somebody as clever as Dale to help us with the production. Uh, it's, uh, well, all of us, I think, have been learning uh, new skills in this uh, COVIDness times, but uh, we are very grateful this afternoon to both Oliver and Dale helping to get this to air. But Dale is going to tell us about what's been going on in England and how the Guardian newspaper has a very interesting report on just how low the Conservatives there are prepared to go. We know that the ones in Australia are pretty bad, but the ones in the UK, you know, they really, one really wonders. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. Yes, um, I think you meant this, this article's from The Observer. Um, but no, that's fine. Um, but yes, it's very much the same sad state of affairs. The observer view on the Commons vote to let poor children go hungry. It is indicative of this government's attitude to poverty that even the education secretary and the children's minister approve of sending them into further hardship. It speaks volumes of the government that it has taken a 22-year-old footballer to step into the vacuum to provide moral and compassionate leadership during a pandemic. Perhaps Boris Johnson thought that giving Marcus Rashford an MBE for his campaign for holiday food vouchers for poor children would muffle his voice. But Rashford has continued to speak truth to power in a way that puts the government to shame. Johnson so you're telling, us, you're telling us it's been a footballer who's been out there fighting for the poor children who have got enough to eat. That's correct. That's correct. Uh, Johnson last week instructed Conservative MPs to vote against a motion to uphold Rashford's continued calls to extend holiday food vouchers for poor children. Just one Conservative minister, Carolyn Ansel, Ansel, 
thought this was a resigning matter. The rest of the Sorry Pack, including Education Secretary Gavin Williamson and Children's Minister Vicky Ford, dutifully trooped through the lobby. That vote to deny children who get free meals during school term food vouchers in the school holidays was bad enough. Even worse are the arguments MPs wheeled out to justify their decision. Brendan Clark-Smith said giving food to hungry children was akin to nationalising children. And Ben Bradley implies these vouchers were spent in crack dens and brothels over the summer. Oh, my God. Mark Jenkinson argued that food parcels were being traded for drugs in his constituency. (laughs) I don't know any drug dealers who will trade food for drugs. Anyway, uh, neither offered a shred of evidence for these ridiculous suppositions. Uh, Shalane Saxby hoped those businesses in her constituency stepping in to provide free meals would not be seeking further government support. Philip Davies lambasted a 16-year-old constituent who wrote to him about the issue for being intolerant. Mark Jenkinson argued that food parcels were being traded for drugs. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, now we know where Pauline Hanson comes from. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> just mind-boggling. It's just mind-boggling. Uh, to continue... Uh, senior ministers know better than to openly voice these sentiments, but these views are far from fringe. They offer an ugly glimpse into a persistent strand of Tory thinking about poverty. Too many have lived privileged lives in the, on the conservative benches and believe their successes are down purely to their hard work, not the advantages that were handed to them on a silver platter. The corollary of this fantastical belief is that people who live in poverty who cannot get a job that pays enough to support their family, are somehow morally deficient. This is nonsensical dogma. Poverty is less the product of individual life choices, but overwhelmingly the inevitable result of the deficient economic and social orders that shape all of our lives. It is generated by low pay, unemployment and poor mental health. Minimum wage jobs do not pay enough for parents to provide for their children without state support. Little wonder that 7 in 10 children in poverty come from working families. Just as bad is the poverty that sets in when large numbers of jobs vanish from an area and a lack of support to retrain consigns many to the scrap heap, making it hard for their children and grandchildren to escape the shackles of multi-generational joblessness. But it does not suit small state conservatives to acknowledge this. Even as they stigmatise people for relying on state handouts, they refuse to ensure cleaners and carers are paid enough to support their families. The Conservative MP Kit Malthouse justified voting against last week's motion because a better way to help children in poverty was to pump money into the welfare system. We wholly agree, but this was an odd sentiment from someone whose party has spent the last decade eroding tax credits and benefits. Many families lost the equivalent of thousands of pounds of support per year in a way that has contributed to rising levels of child poverty. The Conservative chancellors may have told us it was necessary, it was a necessary economy, but the tax cuts they handed more affluent families and businesses that cost billions of pounds a year suggested otherwise. If unemployment soars as expected in the coming months, things will get worse. 
The £20 a week boost to universal credit is set to be rescinded next April, dropping unemployment benefits to their lowest real-term levels since the 1990s. Brendan Clark Smith said giving food to hungry children was akin to nationalising children. Meanwhile, the government has failed to mitigate the educational and mental health impacts of the pandemic on children and rather than address the root causes of the under-attainment of poor children at schools over the past decade, Conservative ministers have flirted with the notion that it's somehow the widespread teaching of critical race theory in, in schools that is disadvantaging white working-class children. Oh, my... I just can't even... Alongside asylum seekers and the legal profession, children now appear to be fair game in the culture war politics of Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings. Whether it is to take pot shots at those campaigning against structural racism or to make Victorian era aspersions about the feckless poor. They've made a massive misjudgment. The dog whistle politics of vote leave cannot carry the country through a pandemic and the overwhelming response to Rashford's call, the hard-pressed businesses, councils and individuals who have come forward to reduce the number of children going hungry shows they have misjudged a nation. It is a heartwarming anecdote to the callousness of ministers. But what do we teach our offspring when, though we can afford to, we choose not to ensure that all children have somewhere safe and warm to live, that they don't go to bed hungry, that they have a pair of shoes without holes. We teach them that to be poor is to be shameful, that there's nothing wrong with a world where despite working all the hours under the sun, you will never escape the fear and anxiety of what would happen if your fridge breaks or your landlord's service serves notice. We teach them that... What should be theirs by rights is theirs only through charity and benevolence. Remember, kids, when you're old enough to vote, who made you go hungry during the coronavirus pandemic of 2020? Remember also why they did it. They did it because they could. Following the vote, not one credible reason was put forward for their refusal to support you and your families. Remember that you were hungry because of an accident of birth. Children in the neighbouring countries of what used to be the UK did not go hungry. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dale. That sounds as if Southern Ireland, at least, um, was not prepared to uh, let the children go hungry. But the Guardian reproduced the Observer article and um, there were 611 comments. People were outraged. This really was going too far. And one, the Guardian's pick of the comments is this. It just beggars belief that this is a government, that's the UK government, which wastes paying test and trace consultants £7,000 a day, but refuses to provide free school meals to poor and hungry children during the school holidays in a pandemic. What a spiteful and unpleasant nation we are becoming. Well, not everybody's like that, even in the UK, because if you go to the UK, you'll find lots and lots of food banks. You'll find in almost every supermarket um, a place where people put free food for the less fortunate. 
which the supermarkets then uh, distribute to charity. And it's, uh, it's really just a reflection, a very bad reflection, on uh, the, the Conservative Party in, um, in Boris Johnson and a few other people, well, a lot of other people. And it's, a, re- and it's a reflection on just the systemic in- inequalities, just the acceptance well, that, oh, there well, will always we, be poor. How Christian of them. Something like that. Uh, the poor will always be with us, but... Um, uh, they're the ones that get to heaven, you forget. <laughs> Not the rich man and the camel, camel's needle. But uh, perhaps uh, Mr Johnson and uh, Mr Cummings and a few other people uh, should go to church more often. But, um, yes, it's it's very sad, very sad situation indeed. But we have similar situations here in Australia. Certainly when, do. When uh, we have um, people like Hanson accusing the poor people in our big, Public service flats uh, of taking drugs automatically. Oh, um, you know, and talking typing of people yeah. and talking about the public apartment block people um, all just drinking their dole checks when there's a large contingent of Muslims living in those blocks. Well, I think that there's a complete disconnect, unfortunately, between the advantaged in our in our country. And the disadvantaged, uh, we're just not not meeting up or talking to each other. Uh, but the best way to get around this, of course, is to send all our children to school together. And uh, we are doing this in our public system. And large numbers of our children do learn to grow up with, with children from different cultures and from different backgrounds and uh, from different bank balances. And that's what our public system is for, and it is the cornerstone of our democracy, and it's worth fighting for. And that's why Dale and Oliver and I are here this afternoon. But that's enough from us from this week. Uh, Thank you very much for allowing us into your kitchen or into your car or wherever you're listening to this program. And uh, we'll be back next week with more of the same. And I'd just like to remind people that you can read our press releases and access the podcasts at the website, which is www.adogs.info. But until next week, it's bye for now. Says Joe, I did.
and smiling with his eyes, says Joe what they can never kill, went on to organize, went on to organize. From San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there you find your hill. It's there you find your hill. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe. You're ten years dead. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. I never died, says he. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.